The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from the makers of BBC History magazine. Alcatraz is remembered as one of history's most hardcore prisons. Known for its ingenious escape attempts, gruelling regime, barren location and dangerous inmates. On today's Everything You Want to Know episode, historian Ashley Rubin answers listener questions on The Rock. From how the prison withstood the corruption of the gangster era to its famous Birdman. Putting the questions to Ashley was Rebecca Franks. Thank you very much for joining me on today's episode of the History Extra podcast. We're going to be talking about Alcatraz. Can we start with the most basic of questions? What is Alcatraz? Sure. So USP Alcatraz or US Penitentiary Alcatraz is the now defunct federal prison that was in use between 1934 and 1963. And it was charged with holding the nation's top public enemies and incorrigible offenders. Those are actually the terms they used. And especially those men who had a habit of escaping custody. And whereabouts is it? So it's on an island in San Francisco Bay. And that island is about 1.25 miles or two kilometers offshore, depending on where you're standing. So if you measure from the famous Girardelli Square or Fisherman's Wharf, it's about that mileage. And you can see it from the Golden Gate Bridge. You have a beautiful view there and from parts of the Bay Bridge. So it's a bit of a landmark in the area. Oh, yeah. I grew up in the area and I had a charm bracelet and it had a little Alcatraz on it. Well, that might bring us on to the first of our listener questions, Belle Buchanan on Instagram would like to know, why is it called Alcatraz? What does the name mean? So the answer is a little convoluted. Alcatraz comes from the archaic Spanish word for pelicans. And many people say Alcatraz means pelican, which is an appropriate moniker for the island since over the years people have commented on the many pelicans on Alcatraz Island. But that's not quite right. So the Spanish word for pelican is actually pelicano, And the original name of the island wasn't Alcatraz, but Alcatraces, which is the Spanish name for the gannet, which is a different bird. So how did Alcatraz actually get its name if, you know, all of that's wrong? So back in the late 1700s, there was a Spanish explorer who called a different island in San Francisco Bay La Isla de los Alcatraces. And in the same year, an English explorer then used that same name to describe Alcatraz Island. And at some point, La Isla de los Alcatraces was simplified to Alcatraz Island. And the other island, the first named one, was called Yerba Buena Island instead. So it has a little bit of a convoluted history, but it also has a nickname, doesn't it? The Rock. When did it become known by that? 
and probably to ask an obvious question, but why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, great question. So the rock is the nickname actually predates the Alcatraz prison that we know and love. So before the rock was a federal prison, it was a military prison in use from 1909 to 1911. And that's the one that got the moniker, the rock. And then the name stuck. And, you know, it's a good nickname. The rock is cold and barren and desolate and isolated. Doing time there is hard. And then also, I think just I think the original kind of why people called it the rock is because the island really is a big hunk of rock in the bay and it's covered in rocks. So in addition to being appropriate because the connotations, it, it really is a rock. It sounds like a pretty bleak place. So when was Alcatraz built and why was this location chosen? So it was authorized by the federal government in 1933 and it opened in 1934. So it was chosen as part of this massive search for a new location for a high security escape proof prison that the federal government wanted to use to keep the worst of the worst offenders, the most incorrigible offenders. So really the Department of Justice was looking for a number of locations. They liked the idea of an island prison. The media liked the idea of an island prison, but ultimately what sealed the deal was the War Department had this old military prison on Alcatraz Island, and they offered it to the DOJ, which accepted. Now, there were some concerns about the impracticalities of using an island, because it turns out islands are not the best place for prisons, and there was a lot of local opposition to the siting of a new maximum security prison that's intended to hold the worst criminals the federal system has to offer, including the most skilled escapists from you know local people in San Francisco who didn't want that to happen. But ultimately, federal authorities moved ahead with the plan. Andre Cito 83 on Instagram would like to know how frequently have islands been used as prisons throughout history? And it's, you've just hinted there that they're not ideal. Yeah, so a couple of things. So you kind of have to start by defining prison. Today, we kind of use prison and jail interchangeably. And throughout history, we've used these terms interchangeably, but they're actually distinct types of facilities with important differences. So prisons are places where we use to punish people convicted of serious crimes with long periods of confinement. Whereas jails serve a lot of different purposes, but they're generally intended to be short-term holding tanks for a variety of people, including people who haven't been convicted of a crime. And so depending on if we're talking about prisons or jails, the answer is going to vary. But if you want both, <laughs> the answer either way is actually not often. Because while islands offer that useful isolation, that's the main attraction that we think of island prisons, that isolation makes it really difficult to run a prison. So for example, on Alcatraz, there's no source of fresh water. So that water has to be you know, shipped in or brought in somehow, which makes it very difficult. And then there are added difficulties of just being so close to the ocean. So the seawater and the salt in the air, that's really corrosive. That actually came in handy for a couple of escape attempts because just the materials of the prison were disintegrating so badly. And then another factor is even though there's a lot of fresh air and the islands are usually quite picturesque, you have a gorgeous view of San Francisco and the surrounding Marin County on the other side from Alcatraz, islands tend to be cold and miserable, which is attractive if you're thinking about a very punitive style prison, but it's also going to be really terrible for the prison staff. That said, there are a number of important examples of island-based prisons and jails throughout history. So the very first prison in the United States, the first state prison, was built in an island, um, Castle Island in Massachusetts Bay in 1785. One of the first three federal prisons that was built in the 1890s was McNeil Island in Washington. 
that had previously served as a territorial prison before it became a federal prison. And then there are a number of famous island prisons that people might have heard of, like the notorious Rikers Island in, in New York City, which is a jail, the very notorious Devil's Island penal colony in French Guiana. That one was actually, a lot of people refer to Alcatraz as America's Devil's Island. So that was very famous and notorious. It had an extremely high death rate and was known for its brutal treatment. If you like literature, the Chateau d'If in France was famous from the Count of Monte Cristo. And then Robben Island in South Africa, which is where Nelson Mandela was imprisoned. So we do have a couple of island-based prisons and jails, just they're not in the majority for sure. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. So before we get on to, to life in the prison and those escape attempts that you mentioned, two of our listeners would like to know quite a similar question. Max H.F. Quigley on Instagram and George Haig on Facebook would like to know what the island's initial uses and, and what were they used for before becoming a prison. Yeah, so back in the 1850s, Alcatraz Island was used as a citadel or a U.S. Army fortress, and it was actually where we had the first lighthouse on the West Coast, and then over time it started to house military prisoners. And then that was really formalized between 1909 and 1911 when they built a new military prison, which was known as the Pacific Coast Disciplinary Barracks for the U.S. Army. And again, that's the one that was known as the Rock. And so that's kind of what it was used for before it became the USP Alcatraz. And if we turn now to life in Alcatraz, what reasons were people sentenced to serve their sentences there, asks Roberto Alessandra on Facebook. So basically, people came from all over the federal system. So first of all, these were federal prisoners, so they committed federal crimes. They had to be sentenced in federal court and convicted of federal crimes, typically felonies. And they really ranged from a wide variety of crimes, from theft, especially car theft, to burglary and bank robbery and murder and tax fraud. So just a lot of different types of crimes. But usually, people are transferred to Alcatraz if they had a history of escaping from custody, or even more commonly, just if they caused problems in other federal prisons. So it was seen as a, a worst of the worst in the prison system. Yeah, so it was definitely billed as the worst of the worst, but it was also kind of the most annoying and like the biggest thorns in the warden's side across the country. And Tracy Steele asks, is it true that officers' families lived on the island too? So historically, prison staff, the administrators and the guards, their families would live at the prison. And that was true of Alcatraz as well. Um, both the warden's family and the prison staff families lived on site. They even had a social club for them. And then something that's important to know is actually all prison staff were required to live on the island as part of the security around Alcatraz. And that actually like wasn't that difficult to get people to do because a position at Alcatraz was actually highly sought after. So a lot of people were anxious to move there and ultimately live there. Why was it so highly sought after? It gave them pretty good job security. So there wasn't a lot of turnover. So that was pretty 
exciting. And could you give a flavour of daily life for the inmates of Alcatraz? What was it like to live in such a prison? Yeah, basically routine and monotonous and pretty bleak. So it was kind of known as a maximum security, minimum privilege prison. That was one of the taglines that the Federal Bureau of Prisons would give the press. So for example, what constituted a privilege at the time? Well, they could write a couple of letters and they could receive one visit per month from a blood relative or from their wife. So that was kind of like exciting. (laughs) But when you weren't having one of those situations, it followed a very clear schedule and that schedule didn't change. So basically you would wake up and get ready at 6.30 and then you would be counted. Then you would leave for the dining hall before seven. And at the dining hall, they would basically do a bunch of signals by whistle where basically you would sit, you would, you know, stand there with your back straight. You had to keep your hands in certain positions. When they, you know, blow the whistle again, you're allowed to start eating. When they blow the whistle again, you have to stop eating. You have to finish exactly what's on your plate, like just really meticulous, um, strict rules and procedures. And so that would, that would be, you know, your, your breakfast. And then they would work from 7.30 to 11.15. And in between, they would have an eight-minute break. So basically two shifts, and then they would be counted, and then they would have lunch. Same deal with the whistles and all that. Then at 12.30, they would return back to work until 4.10, where, again, they would have an eight-minute break in between. And then they would be in their cells, and they would have another count. Then they would have dinner, (laughs) and they would do that by 4.25, and then it was back to their cells by 4.50 with yet another count. And then they were basically in their cells from, um, from that count until the next count the next morning. So they're in their cells for about 14 hours overnight. And then twice a week, they could shave and shower. On Saturdays, they got yard time in the afternoon where they could engage in various recreational sports or play chess or checkers and that sort of thing. And then on Sundays, there would be either a Protestant or Catholic mass, depending on your preference, in the morning. And after that, they got yard time in the remainder of the morning. So basically, they were in their cell or working for the majority of the time that they were there. And could you tell us a little bit about who some of the most famous or notorious inmates were of Alcatraz? Sure. So if you like early gangster films or movies about the Depression-era bank robbers, of which there are a lot, you'll recognize a lot of the big names who spent time at Alcatraz. So most famously, Al Capone, but also Machine Gun Kelly, Alvin Karpis, also known as Creepy Karpis, Doc Barker of the Barker Gang, and plus a lot of people who ran with folks like Bonnie and Clyde, John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd, and other members of the Barker Carpus Gang. So Bonnie and Clyde didn't actually go to Alcatraz, they were killed, but some of their cohorts were, same with John Dillinger and so on. There's actually a pretty famous case that's uh, a kind of an interesting story that gives you a sense of why Alcatraz was created, basically. So there was a criminal named Roy Gardner. And so he was famous at the time. I actually hadn't heard of him. Like, I'm not sure if there were any movies made about him. Maybe there were. But he was notorious at the time. And he was known as a bank robber and a train robber. And he had a history of escaping custody. So he was basically the type of prisoner that Alcatraz was made for. So after he got to McNeil Island, which was one of the three federal prisons that predated Alcatraz, he told the warden, I won't be staying long. And then after he escaped from McNeil Island, as promised, he was recaptured and he was transferred to Leavenworth, um, which is a famous American federal prison. And he bragged, Leavenworth won't be holding me. So he didn't actually escape, but he was transferred to Atlanta, which is our third federal prison that predated Alcatraz. And there he was pretty much a pain in the ward inside. He created a hunger strike and was generally difficult. And so he got transferred back to Leavenworth to an annex prison at Leavenworth. And actually there he felt snubbed because he wasn't on the original list of prisoners to be 
be transferred to Alcatraz. And he was kind of offended that he wasn't considered one of the worst of the worst. And so he volunteered to go to Alcatraz. And that's how he ended up uh, being there. So even though he was actually one of the, the many prisoners who was escaping from federal custody and embarrassing the federal government, and basically became kind of part of the the reason why we needed Alcatraz or why federal authorities thought we needed Alcatraz. He ended up actually not being on that list. And so, but he, he got himself in there. And so he was actually one of Alcatraz's first inmates. So for him, it was almost a badge of honor. Oh, yes. Yeah. Could you tell us about the Birdman of Alcatraz and who he was? Yeah. So this is a fascinating one. So Robert Stroud is known as the Birdman of Alcatraz, but he didn't actually have any birds there. So he got his reputation as the Birdman when he was at Leavenworth, um, one of the federal prisons that predated Alcatraz. So he was initially sentenced to McNeil Island in Washington for manslaughter. But he was a pretty violent prisoner and attacked and stabbed other prisoners, one of which got him an additional sentence and a transfer to Leavenworth. And there he stabbed a guard. But this is before Alcatraz existed, so they didn't have you know a place for the worst of the worst prisoners or the really annoying prisoners. So he stayed on at Leavenworth. And it's there where he got into birds. So he he found like a bird nest and started raising birds and then just kept raising birds. And apparently at the time, prisoners could buy birds. So they would like buy canaries. So he bought canaries and then started raising them and like breeding them. And then he would sell those. And he ultimately wrote a book called Diseases of Canaries. And he even developed medicines for birds. And the warden went along with this. So he initially actually used Stroud to kind of showcase some of the rehabilitative work they were doing at the prison. So some people within the federal prison system even during this tough period of the 20s and 30s, were interested in rehabilitation. And so he kind of wanted to use Stroud as a poster child of like, hey, look at the progressive work we're doing. But Stroud's popularity and especially his extensive correspondence actually became difficult for the prison. So prison officials did actually try to stop his canary raising and his business. But because of his popularity with the press, he was able to retain his privileges. He got people to basically speak up for him. Um, and so he kept going. But ultimately, what ended it is there was a dispute about him not receiving royalties from his book. And somehow that landed him back in Alcatraz. I think either the warden was embarrassed or they just wanted it to stop or I don't know. But for whatever reason, um, that's actually what caught him in Alcatraz. And at that point, he had to leave behind his birds, his business, all of the equipment that he had developed, all of his medicines. And when he got to Alcatraz, he actually spent a lot of time in solitary confinement there. And then when he wasn't in solitary confinement, he was actually a very sickly person. And so he spent a lot of time in the hospital as well. And then near the end of his life, he was transferred out of Alcatraz to a federal medical facility, which is where he died, which interestingly was the same year that Alcatraz was shut down. And how did Alcatraz compare to other US prisons? Okay, so there are a couple of ways of answering this. The short answer is it was strict and more punitive, and it was kind of known to be that way. But you can also kind of think more big picture. So kind of architecturally and thinking in terms of prison design. So to kind of situate Alcatraz in the larger history, it actually spans two eras of prison design. Um, American prisons kind of have these eras where we build prisons that all kind of look the same, and then we move on to a new design. So it's kind of straddling these two eras. So the first one is what we call the big house era. So this is a period of about the 1910s, and it kind of goes into the 1930s. So the big house is the classic design that we see in a lot of prison movies in the first half of the 20th century. So these are multi-story cell blocks. The cells have bars in the front, and they're generally designed to hold 
one or two prisoners. The prisoners usually work in some sort of industry, famously making license plates, but they would also do other manufacturing, of course. So big house prisons were supposed to be pretty tough places focused on a combination of deterrence and incapacitation. Basically, the idea was make doing time scary enough so that people don't want a repeat. <laughs> they don't want to go back to prison and other people learn from their example and they think, oh, I don't want to go to prison, so I'm not going to commit crime. And in the meantime, at least they'll be off the streets. So kind of an incapacitation idea, basically, you know, they can't commit crime while they're in prison, or at least they can't commit crime on, you know, good upstanding citizens who aren't in prison. In this period, there were some reformers and prison administrators who supported rehabilitation, but especially with the Great Depression, the Prohibition, um, and the resulting crime wave, a lot of prison policy shifted in that more punitive direction that really meshed well with the big house model. Okay, so things change, especially in the 1940s and after the Second World War, kind of we're becoming a little bit optimistic, we're getting out of the Depression, prohibition's over, and so we enter the era of the correctional institution. So basically in this period, criminological thought shifted more towards rehabilitation. Basically the idea is prisons should try to fix people, that they commit crime because there's something wrong with them or that society hasn't given them a fair shake, and so we need to do something to basically help them out. So give them education, give them therapy, as well as job training, basically so that they don't need or want to commit crime anymore. So correctional institutions tend to be smaller. They're kind of prettier. They tend to be in bucolic settings. They have a lot more kind of green on campus. And in fact, uh, a lot of people will liken them to like a university setting or to a mental hospital, which the prisoners really didn't like, especially they hated the term inmates, which was common at the time. But of course, it was still a prison. So even though it kind of, in some views, looked like a, a classroom setting or a hospital setting, it was still not great. Um, but we also did a lot of kind of superficial changes. So prisoners were encouraged to read and write, engage in group therapy, but we also kind of changed the name. So they went from convict to inmate and guards went from guards to correctional officer. And of course, prisons went from prisons or penitentiaries to correctional institution or correctional facility. And they had a bunch of kind of pretty names like Frontera. <laughs> uh, that doesn't really sound like a prison. So Alcatraz opens towards the end of the big house era and it's built on the big house model. But like a lot of big house prisons, it was still going strong when penological thought shifted and we kind of moved into that correctional era. And at that point, Alcatraz kind of continued to hold on to a lot of its original ideas and increasingly became an outlier. So another way of thinking about how Alcatraz compares to other prisons, kind of going back to the early days of Alcatraz. So Alcatraz changes over time. Um, it was a hard place to do time, but it was a harder place to do time in the early days, especially in that big house era. But even compared to those other big house prisons, it was run as a tighter ship. So in this time, both federal and state prisons in the 1920s, 1930s had a lot of corruption. So keep in mind, this is before prisons were professionalized. A lot of people who worked in prisons, even people who ran prisons in their early decades of the 20th century, basically had very little experience with prisons and sometimes even with criminal justice generally. And a lot of the administrators, like wardens, were political appointees who got their jobs out of patronage for supporting the governor. Whoever wins the next governorship, they're going to appoint their cronies to the position. So you don't have basically top shelf people running these prisons or working inside of them. Staff 
also were terribly paid. So bribery was a big problem where the the prisoners would basically bribe the staff for perks and privileges and better job assignments, you know, better food, the ability to get gifts from like people outside that maybe weren't allowed. So this was a big problem with Al Capone. (laughs) He's kind of the poster child of this. So famously, he spent time at Eastern State Penitentiary, which is now exists as a prison museum. So you can go and tour it and you can actually see his cell and see he was living large. So he bought and paid for a lot of privileges and basically was able to continue his illegal business dealings in prison and live in a really comfortable way. Like the guy had an arm chair in his prison cell. So this was like not the bleak, you know, stereotype of of prisons at the time. And then he was in for a rude awakening when he got to Alcatraz because that did not fly. So even for low-level prisoners at these federal and state prisons, basically things could be pretty lax and you could work out deals with guards. And there was um, a lot of corruption is kind of a weird word to use, but even among prisoners, there was um, like an underground economy, just a lot of rule violations. And so there were efforts to crack down on that, but Alcatraz seems to have actually been one of the more effective prisons at making sure that didn't happen. And it seems like a lot of the guards really did stick to the rules. There don't seem to be a lot of exceptions to that. And I think my favorite example of just how different the culture was at Alcatraz for the guards is the guards weren't allowed to talk to the press. So especially around escape attempts, a lot of people wanted to know like, you know, scintillating details. And so the staff just were not allowed to talk to them. Um, And so decades later, like well after Alcatraz closed, an academic was doing a study that was authorized by the Bureau of Prisons and he tried to interview the guards. And it was actually really difficult to get them to talk. And so he had to have a letter from the Bureau of Prisons saying, the study is approved by the director. It's okay to talk to the researcher. Uh, So like that's how strict this culture was. And so it, it basically made it really difficult to learn about Alcatraz at the time. So there was, of course, a lot of misinformation um, based on um, kind of secondhand accounts and various press kind of speculation and stuff. But the guards themselves just would not talk. And that wasn't the case at a lot of other prisons. A lot of the ambitions about Alcatraz were actually the same as earlier generations of prison. So I've just said, you know, it's, it's kind of more buttoned up. It's more extreme than the big house and the correctional institution But it's important to remember that a lot of these ideas, this idea that prisoners are cut off from the outside world and from each other, this was actually a theme going back to the early prisons, like back in the early 19th century. But of course, by the 20th century, a lot of these ideas had just kind of petered out. They weren't easy to implement. And so it's kind of funny that Alcatraz was actually going back to the basics, going back to our early ideas about what prisons were supposed to be like. How much did Alcatraz change over its lifetime? Yeah, it changed quite a bit. (laughs) So, you know, it was open for about 30 or so years, and there was massive social change and especially penological change. And then also the just, you know, the types of prisoners that they were sending were also changing. So the scholar who literally wrote the book on Alcatraz, David Ward, distinguishes between what he calls the gangster years, um, which are 1934 to 48. And this is the period under Alcatraz's first and longest serving warden. And then contrast that to the period after, which is a period where there was pretty high turnover in the administration, where they had several more wardens, each of whom spent about five or so years as warden. So the gangster years are the period that Ward says are basically pure or classic Alcatraz, the Alcatraz that's the closest to its original plan and the American imagination, which is this really punitive, tightly run prison. And that's actually pretty standard for a lot of these kind of specially designed prisons. The early years are usually kind of the best in terms of the closest to the the plan. 
And then after that, things kind of change and we kind of loosen up or kind of figure out what works and develop workarounds and things like that. So in the later years, we're kind of more in that phase where things loosen up a little bit. It's still a maximum security prison, but it's more like other maximum security prisons at the time. And in addition to being more lax, there were more problems. So American prisons in the 1950s and 1960s actually developed a lot of problems. And Alcatraz suffered a lot of them just like these other prisons. So other prisons were dealing with riots. Um, So Alcatraz didn't actually have a riot, although there was the siege of Alcatraz, which was an escape attempt. And that's kind of the closest to a riot that, that happened, but they didn't actually have any real riots. But throughout the country, prisoners in this period were developing a greater political consciousness And they found both practical and legal ways to resist the regime. Race relations also shifted dramatically. Prisons suffered more violence, and Alcatraz was no exception there. Keeping in mind that bigger pitch and the context at the moment, what does the existence of Alcatraz tell us about the US justice and prison systems? Yeah, so there are a lot of a lot of things we can think about Alcatraz and, and what it tells us. So one thing to keep in mind is Alcatraz is an outlier, and outliers can be interesting. So Alcatraz was basically designed to clean up the mess that was the federal prison system at the time. And in the United States, we have a long history of turning to some prisons or sometimes just part of our existing prisons to fix problems that the main system just can't handle. So throughout history, we usually turn to some sort of punishment on the grounds of the prison. Usually this would be some version of the hole or dark cell, various names for where prisoners would do additional solitary confinement, usually on a bread and water diet for a period of days or weeks. Later, when states started to build more than one prison for the whole state, we developed different security level prisons. So we would have a minimum security prison, a medium security prison, and a maximum security prison. And the idea there was that you would take the worst prisoners and put them into the maximum security prisons, and you would take the kind of lowest level offenders, those who were least likely to recidivate, kind of isolate them from the kind of notorious bad prisoners. But the funny thing is, the security levels didn't actually match up to the populations. We would just shuffle people around based on not their dangerousness, but just how much of a pain they were for for the wardens. So if a warden didn't want to deal with a particularly annoying prisoner, they would just transfer them to a different security level, never mind what that security level actually was. So today we've continued that tradition. We have the supermax prison, so supermaxes, which is short for supermaximum security prison, so minimum, medium, maximum, supermaximum. So these are prisons where prisoners spend about 23 hours a day in solitary confinement. And Alcatraz is actually oftentimes called the first supermax, which I don't agree with that label. It's it's not quite right because Alcatraz didn't really use a lot of solitary confinement. It definitely didn't use it routinely for most prisoners. So some prisoners would be in solitary, but not the majority. But what Alcatraz and the Supermax do have in common is both were ostensibly reserved for the worst of the worst prisoner. So today's Supermax is often described as being reserved for the Hannibal electors of the world. But most people who ended up in Alcatraz or who end up in a supermax tend to be ordinary criminals who are just kind of pains to deal with rather than, you know, some criminal mastermind. So far fewer Al Capones were at Alcatraz than just, you know, really annoying prisoners that, you know, just caused a lot of trouble. And in fact, in the study that I mentioned that was looking at those um, former Alcatraz staff, but also the prisoners, they found that actually half of the men who spent time in Alcatraz never returned to the prison after the release. Um, And the number was even higher after the early years, so it's known as the gangster era. So these men who were ostensibly incorrigible recidivists actually weren't. So, you know, you can take that what you will. One of the most popular 
listener queries and most popularly searched queries online is around the topic of escape. Did anyone successfully escape Alcatraz? Yeah, so it depends on your definition of escape. <laughs> it also depends on your standard of proof. So there were at least 14 known escape attempts by individuals or groups of prisoners, and a lot of them died trying, or they were caught or just gave up. So did people get out of their cells? Did they get out of the buildings? Yes, but a lot of those would probably be considered unsuccessful because they were you know, caught or died. Quite a few actually made it to the water, um, and some were even able to hide out for a few hours before getting caught. So in 1945, one man was actually able to board the ferry from Alcatraz to Angel Island, but he was caught at Angel Island. In 1958, two men escaped from their work detail, and they also made it to the water. They actually used garbage bags as flotation devices and basically went out and, and swam slash drifted. One man was picked up by the police, but the other one disappeared and his body later surfaced, and so he definitely was not successful. In 1962, two men made it to the water. One was found nearby, but the other one actually swam all the way to Fort Point, which is one of the prominent points that's right next to Golden Gate Bridge on this beautiful walking trail today. So he swam all the way over there, but he was hypothermic and exhausted. And after he was hospitalized, he was returned to Alcatraz. So successful in some degree. The first person who's uh, known to have you know, actually swam and made it to shore. So that's a kind of success. The really interesting cases are the ones where the bodies never showed up. And so we don't actually know, were they successful? Did they survive? Or did they drown and we just, you know, never got their bodies? So in 1937, two men escaped during their work assignment, and they made it to the water under the cover of fog, but they were never heard from again. And people think they died because the weather was bad, and so they're presumed drowned. But again, we didn't find their bodies, so it's possible. But of course, the most famous escape, the subject of the Clint Eastwood movie Escape from Alcatraz, is Frank Morris and the England brothers who escaped from their cells in 1962 in probably the most creative and kind of engineeringly interesting escape. So my favorite part of their escape is they basically made paper mache heads and left them on their beds so that the guards would think that they're still in their cell. They also used spoons to carve out their cell walls. Um, and I, I mentioned that the seawater wasn't great for, you know, prisons. So the, the seawater makes the concrete and the plaster pretty crumbly. So they were able to carve out of their cell walls with augmented spoons, but spoons nevertheless. Yeah, so they were able to get out of their cell and then kind of work their way through the insides of the prison. And when they made it to the, the water, they had made a lifeboat using rain jackets that were tied together. I think there were over 50 life jackets or, or sorry, rain jackets that they, they used. And between the creativity of their efforts and the fact that they actually made it to, to the water, I and mean, of course, some people say they're still alive. This has really triggered our collective imagination. So it's it's definitely a fascinating escape attempt. And but of course, you know, the really interesting part is what happened next. A lot of people claim that, that the three men survived. Um, various family members and the FBI have received letters from people claiming to be either Frank Morris or one or both of the England brothers. Other people, including like childhood classmates, have claimed to see them. Interestingly, the U.S. Marshal Service still lists Frank Morris as a wanted man. So, you know, even they think there's at least a possibility. It's possible that that they're still out there, um, although at this point they're they're probably passed away. But, you know, at least for a couple of decades, it was possible that they were out enjoying life, enjoying freedom. Full marks for their creativity. Yeah. <laughs> a 
couple of listeners have questions related to events in 1969. They'd like to know why did Native Americans or Indigenous Americans occupy the prison for close to two years? What happened and why? Yeah, so from November 1969 to June 1971, a group of Native Americans from different tribes, different nations, occupied Alcatraz in protest as part of what was then called the American Indian Movement. So there were kind of two important factors at play. So this is 1969, Alcatraz closes in 1963. And at this point, Alcatraz was considered unused or surplus federal land. Basically, it was unused, kind of left to lay fallow from about 1964 onwards. And so that was the first factor. Now, combine that with the second factor, which is there was a treaty from 1868, the Treaty of Fort Laramie. And some people interpret that as saying that any unused federal land should be returned to the Sioux people. So earlier in the 1960s, there had been earlier protests and occupation attempts by Native Americans from different uh, nations and tribes to gain control of the island, basically to uphold this treaty. But a lot of these failed pretty quickly. But then there was an important Native American cultural center in San Francisco that burned down in October of 69. And that seems to have prompted renewed efforts in November. And that ultimately led to this occupation. And it went on for quite a while, (laughs) over a year and a half. And they got celebrities to come out and visit Jane Fonda, very famously. They got a lot of media attention. Over time, though, it kind of lost steam, both internally and externally. At some point, somebody set fire to a number of the buildings and And uh, that kind of helped to reduce support. And eventually it kind of petered out. But in terms of the kind of long running effects, um, it is ultimately credited with encouraging the federal government to pass um, what was called the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act of 1975. So it went on and had some effect. And when and why did Alcatraz close? It closed in 1963, and there were a combination of factors. Um, so I had mentioned those two sets of escapes, the Morris and England brothers, and then the other one in 1962 where the guy made it to Fort Point. Um, so those two escapes were you know, not great for the ostensibly escape-proof prison. But then in the 1960s, this is well into the correctional era where we're all about rehabilitation and therapy And Alcatraz just seems like this, you know, almost barbaric outlier relic from a previous time. You know, the era of the public enemy had long since passed. Like that was really great for getting Alcatraz going in the 1930s, but we're kind of over that. And so these two factors convinced the Bureau of Prisons to close Alcatraz. But it's carried on occupying this powerful place, really, in the fictional imagination in films and in books. One of our listeners mentioned The Birdman of Alcatraz as his favourite book. We might even think of Azkaban in the Harry Potter books, which is partly based on Alcatraz. Why do you think people are so fascinated by it? Yeah, this is a great question. And it's one I think about a lot. I think in general, a lot of us are fascinated by prisons for reasons that I really fully don't understand. I study prisons for a living and I can't explain what the attraction is, um, even for myself. There's just something simultaneously horrifying and compelling about these places where I just have to know more. And I think it's not unrelated to our collective thirst for true crime stories. So I think I think there's like a lot going on there. I think some of it has to do with we just don't know how much is going on in prisons. And I think, like, I mean, for example... 
the people who seem to be the most captivated by prisons tend to be the people who haven't been ordered to spend time there. People who have spent time in prison, you know, have served time, uh, know what it's like and just how awful it is. And it loses whatever attractive mystery that prisons hold for people, you know, who aren't in that situation. And so they typically don't want to think about or even fetishize prisons in the way that, you know, I might. <laughs> but for those of us who haven't lived that experience, we have this deep learning to know more about these unknown places. And I think some of it, at least a big part of it, I think is kind of our morbid curiosity about extreme and terrifying events and places. Like we can't help but wonder how we ourselves would fare in these places. Just like, you know, we want to know about people who survive tsunamis or avalanches, because I think maybe deep down, we're trying to figure out if we'd be able to survive those situations. So I think some of it really boils down to, we want to know, you know, if we have to survive prison time, would we break or would we thrive? I can totally understand. I think you, you put your finger on it there. What is the prison used for now? Can people visit it? Yeah, absolutely. So in 1973, Alcatraz was added to the Golden Gate National Park and opened for tours. And to this day, you can get on a ferry and you can head out to Alcatraz for a tour led by the National Park Rangers. And once there, if you're a really good swimmer, you too can swim back to San Francisco during the annual Escape from Alcatraz Triathlon or the regularly scheduled Odyssey Alcatraz swims, which actually have friends who have done those. So it's absolutely visitable and swimmable. That was Ashley Rubin speaking to Rebecca Franks. Ashley's an expert in penal history and associate professor at the University of Hawaii. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.